Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi everyone, this is New Books Network and my name is Armand Gildas. Today I have the great pleasure of hosting Mark David Baer to talk about his book German Jew, Muslim, Gay, The Life and Times of Hugo Marcus, which came out of Columbia University Press in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Mark. Uh, Thank you for having me. Before we continue with the book, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Well, by training, I'm actually a historian of the Ottoman Empire, of Islamic history, as well as of Jewish history. And you, so, But this book is about German history, and this book is gay history, and this book is also about a convert to Islam. Now, I, when I was young, I grew up in part in Germany. So I already knew German, and even though professionally I became a historian of the Ottoman Empire and I studied the Islamic languages of Arabic and Turkish and Persian, I always kept close ties to Germany. I I lived there, I visited there, and so when I was in Berlin, actually, I was learning about, studying, following the followers of a 17th century Ottoman Jewish messianic figure named Shabbatai Tzvi. And his followers spread out across Europe, and his descendants, the descendants of his followers were also in Germany. So I was in Berlin, actually studying, learning about researching what I normally do, which is Ottoman history, Ottoman Jewish history, conversion to Islam. And I found out that the leading Turkish citizen in Nazi Berlin was in fact a descendant of these Jewish followers of the 17th century Ottoman messianic figure Shabbatai Tzvi. So I was writing about that. But then some colleagues of mine told me that actually Across town, at Berlin's only mosque at the time in Nazi Germany, the leading Muslim was also a Jew, was a Jewish convert to Islam. And I thought, well, I've already written three books about converts to Islam. And even though this is German history, why don't I take a look? And why don't I leave Ottoman history, Turkish history behind, and let me follow my interest in the intersection, the connected histories between Muslims and Jews. And so I began to learn about this fascinating figure named Hugo Marcus. Now, Hugo Marcus was relatively unknown. There had been a few biographical entries published about him in various gay and also um, German uh, encyclopedic works, but these were full of factual inaccuracies. There also was a short, a couple of pages about him in one of the first histories of Muslims in Germany. But again, that was also filled with inaccuracies. And one of the photos that appeared in, in that book, the book by Manfred Bachhausen, 
which is an outstanding book. One of the, maybe the only photo of Marcus that appeared in that book was of him wearing a fez, so an oriental costume. And so this, I thought this was, this was misleading in a way, because as I began to read his published, as well as his unpublished work, I realized this was a man who was seeking to bring together Germanness and Muslimness. He was certainly no Orientalist. And I mean, at the same time, uh, this interest in Islam and his conversion to Islam, it has a lot of, I mean, intellectual historical backgrounds, including uh, authors like Goethe, but also like uh, other German philosophers who he compares to. Islamic ethics with Kant's ethics, for instance. Would you like to talk about how this intellectual history came into play? There were other German men of Jewish background or Christian background who also converted to Islam as Marcus did. Marcus converted probably around 1925. And around that time, other well-known figures became Muslim. So one of the most well-known is Muhammad Assad, is this leading intellectual who was, like Marcus, was Jewish, although from Austria. And to Assad, one could not be European and Muslim. One could not be German or of a German-speaking cultural background and be Muslim. Assad argued in his work that in order to be Muslim, this is the 1920s, 1930s, one had to leave Europe and one had to as he did. He went to Arabia. He learned Arabic. He dressed as an Arab. He married a series of Muslim women. This was his vision. This was, he saw, Muhammad Assad saw that everything was wrong with Christian culture, with German culture, with European culture. And what he found for himself as a solution was to leave it behind physically, intellectually, and to enter into the Islamic cultural realm. Now, Marcus, again, an unknown figure, more or less unknown figure, had the opposite view. Marcus believed, and there are German Muslims today who would agree with him, that being German and being Muslim are not contradictory, that one could fulfill the tenets of German culture and Islamic culture uh, without any contradiction. In other words, Marcus believed that the values of Islam and the values of German culture were, were, were the, one of the same. Now, I, I'm not arguing this is the case, but this is what he argued. And, and, and there were other like-minded German converts in the 1920s who, like some of the Muslims in Berlin today at, at German, almost exclusively German mosques, German ethnically German mosques, German-speaking mosques, also believed that, that Germans, in a way, can be the best Muslims. So as I read Marcus's, the, the sermons, the preachings, the, the, the lectures he gave at the mosque in the 20s and 30s, as I read his philosophical works, as I read his private letters, this picture of a man emerged, a man who believed, and this goes to your question, a man who believed that actually Goethe, the great thinker, writer, German cultural figure, Goethe, was in fact his model for becoming Muslim. Now, we know that Goethe was not a Muslim. 
Goethe did not believe in organized religion. Uh, some saw Goethe as a prophet. And in fact, Goethe wrote about this, this, this moving line between prophecy and, and poetry. And so Goethe was intrigued by the figure of Muhammad and the borderline between when is one a poet and one is, when does one cross over and start doing what is divine or carrying out God's message as a prophet. So Goethe wrote about this, and Marcus was intrigued by this writing, and Marcus believed, as did other German Muslims in the 20s and also today, that Goethe, because he was so sympathetic to Islam and wrote such positive things about Muslims that no other Germans wrote, he had his famous, he wrote a poem called the, the well, Muhammad's Poem, in which um, it's really quite a beautiful, ecstatic uh, Paul. So, no other figures in German culture in that time period, the 18th century, early 19th century, were so sympathetic to Islam. So, Marcus believed, as I mentioned, like others, that actually, and taking some of Goethe's own lines from his poetry or from West East Divan, he believed that he actually meant it when he said that um, that we all are Muslim. We all live um, and, and die in Islam. If Islam, uh, well, you know, the famous, the famous couplet. Also, you know, Goethe actually said that um, if someone were to say that I'm a Muslim, I'm not, I'm not going to deny it. So, so Goethe actually said all these kind of things, and Marcus took them literally and took Goethe as a model of someone who was the pinnacle of German culture, intellectual thought, and also, he believed, a Muslim believer. And how did Marcus's uh, Jewish background play into this conversion? And I mean, maybe related related to that, uh, you, in my opinion, you make a very important argument about how we usually imagine cultural transmission between, let's say, Jews and Muslims. How how does uh, the story of Marcus? Uh, talk to that uh, imagination. Well, as, as a number of important scholars, such as uh, Susanna Heschel has pointed out, there were German Jewish Orientalists in the 19th and the early 20th century whose views of Islam were more sympathetic than that of their Christian colleagues. In fact, because German Jewish Orientalists were so sympathetic to Islam, some even, again, converted to Islam. Or if they didn't convert, they wrote um, in very, very positive ways about Islam, seeing Islam and Judaism as very similar as opposed to Christianity, seeing Islam and Judaism as religions which promote intellectual thought, rational thinking, and the, the life of the mind, as opposed to how they viewed Christianity. At the same time, these German Orientalists were the victims of anti-Semitism. Famously, some of them were never allowed to become full well, professors in Central Europe because they were Jewish, because of this, this anti-Jewish racism. So some of them began to depict Islam in also a, quite a romantic way, and began to write about the tolerance of medieval Islam, medieval Islamic ruled cultures and, and, and kingdoms, and compare them favorably to 
Christian-ruled kingdoms in medieval and, and pre-modern Europe. Rightly so. Christian Europe, as we know, forcibly converted, murdered, expelled Jews, whereas the Muslim kingdoms of Europe, including the Ottoman Empire, tolerated Jews, allowed them to be Jewish, and even allowed, such as the Ottomans, even allowed Jews to, who had been forcibly converted to Catholicism in places such as Christian Spain, allowed them to take refuge in the Ottoman Empire and become Jewish again. So there already was a, a, a pro-Islamic um, Jewish view towards Islam in these centuries. And so, in a way, Marcus, tie, he, he taps into that. He also taps into the views of German Orientalists that Islam is a religion that favors logic and reason and rational thinking and the life of the mind. Marcus was very much um, not a mystic and in fact, he, he even purposely misread some of Goethe's works on Islam, which today scholars interpret as, be, is, is, see as being mystical rather than rational. But Marcus was very much viewing Islam as his other German-speaking, Central European, German uh, Orientalist forebears. Thinking also together what you said before about how he wasn't an Orientalist in the same sense, uh, and how there are now today uh, Germans who converted to Islam who follow this kind of idea of best Muslims are German Muslims. Um, how do you see, because I mean, in, for instance, Esra Uzurek's book, we see that um, there's also ra like racial, racialized tendencies about claiming why German Islam is the best Islam. Uh, how do you see his position in relation to this? Well, this is, this is an intriguing point. And in my book, it, 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 one of the reviewers um, was very happy that I, I don't, I don't, you know, I present Marcus in a very objective way. I mean, there's a, a lot of his writing one could certainly take issue with, uh, the misogyny, for example. I mean, here was a, and we'll talk about this, here was a gay man who was constantly promoting utopias where practically there are no women. So we can, we can, we can, we can talk about that. But also, it is noticeable that his Islam goes from, let's say, Muhammad directly to Goethe and then to himself and other uh, Germans. So he, he doesn't rely on that great Islamic tradition of thousands, 1,400 years of Islamic thought. He, he, it's, it's, I, it's difficult to find him making reference to any born Muslim thinker who's from the majority Muslim world. So, of course, Muhammad is his... Um, of course, he, 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 he's, he's, he's very intrigued by the character of Muhammad and his role as, as prophet. But there isn't, there isn't any discussion of, of, of the Muslims who made the Islamic world and, and, and created is, and, and interpreted and revised Islam over the centuries. So, so his Islam is a very German Islam. Again, he claims that to have read the same German translation of the Quran that Goethe had read. So he's constantly, so he's making connections. He's establishing Islam in Germany. He's, he's placing Islam in Germany in the 18th century and drawing a line from Goethe to himself. And he also, he also talks about 
um, other characters. But again, it's it's very much a, a German Islam. It's very much a an Islam of that he creates in his mind. Now, people have asked me, but was he really a Muslim, though? Um, well, yes, he was. He converted to Islam. He practiced Islam. He prayed in the mosque, and he very much believed in the, the prophecy of Muhammad and the Quran as as the as a holy book, as God's message. So, so there's no question that he believed and he accepted, and he was a Muslim. The question is, what did his Muslim contain? And this I talk about in the book. What normally today. We talk about Sunni Muslims having five pillars of practice or, or belief. And one of those, perhaps the first one, is the Shahada, that a Sunni, someone who converts to Sunni Islam or, or, or a believer in Sunni Islam says that they accept that Muhammad is, uh, that there's no God except God, and Muhammad is God's messenger. Now, Marcus did not include the Shahada as one of the five pillars of Islam. So in his writings, he inserted a new pillar. And in that new pillar, he placed himself. So that new pillar includes beauty. It includes pacifism. He created a space for people like him who were different. And this is an allusion to his being gay. And I mean, well, speaking of that, um, he was a close friend of Magnus Hirschfeld and was very active in uh, the uh, gay rights movement. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that period as well? Right. So Marcus, and what attracted me to writing this book, this is the first biography in any language about Marcus. And, and, and also you might wonder, why, why, hasn't, why hadn't anyone written a book about Marcus before? Because we have biographies of Assad, and we have biographies of the, the other famous Jewish convert of, of that day, who was Esad Bey. So we, we have biographies of those men. They're very well known. They're very well orientalist. They fit in certain um, um, tropes of looking at Muslims. But no one had written about Marcus. And so why is that? Why is that? I mean, one reason is that he was a gay activist. And this may be why Jewish studies as well as Islamic studies scholars weren't interested in him or didn't want to write about him. Too controversial to write about a gay man. Also, the fact that he's a convert, his Jewish convert may have been a, um, a reason why some other people weren't attracted to writing about him, but also because he wasn't the leader of any movement. He didn't write a bestseller like Muhammad Assad, uh, who wrote Road to Mecca in the 50s in English. Marcus wrote in German. All of the material that I read for this book was in German, whether published or unpublished. He was somewhat known as a philosoph philosophical thinker in the early 20th century. But he didn't write, he didn't publish any path-breaking work on Islam as Muhammad Assad did. He also didn't write any well-known fiction that's been translated to English, such as Esad Bey wrote some turgid um, Orientalist novels that actually um, a lot of Muslims were insulted by. Marcus wrote, actually he wrote two novellas, but these were gay novellas. One was in 1900, one was uh, a dozen years after that. So he wrote he wrote fiction also in the published in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, gay fiction. And so Marcus 
gave me the opportunity to write about the gay rights movement, the history of Muslims in Germany, and also the history of Jews in Germany, and to inter bring those three disparate historiographies and discourses and, and, and uh, histories together in the life of one man. And that's what attracted me to write this book. Now, your question was about his role in the gay rights movement. So again, Marcus wasn't a leader, but he was an assistant to the well-known Magnus Hirschfeld. Again, we have half a dozen biographies about Hirschfeld. Hirschfeld was a a towering figure in the gay rights movement. Now, we may not accept anymore today Hirschfeld's ideas about being gay and so on, but we have to credit him with what he did. He established the first gay rights organization in the world, and this was the Scientific um, Humanitarian Committee um, in before 1900. So Marcus was an early member of this group, and Marcus was Hirschfeld's assistant. They traveled around when when Hirschfeld was conducting his ethnography of gay life in Berlin. Marcus was there with him um, as an assistant. Marcus was a writer. Marcus was a great editor, and he was a very serious person. And so people would write something, give it to Marcus to correct. So he played this supporting role. That's also why he's not well known. But so he was there with Hirschfeld for decades. Hirschfeld was was uh, older, and he was a model in a way. He also, Marcus was also close to someone who was a couple years younger, who was another very important gay rights activist. And of course, who, who, when you think of gay rights activists in German history around that time, who's the second person that, that we think about? Doesn't come to, <laughs> doesn't come to mind. I mean, Hirsch, okay, so, so let me go back to Hirschfeld for a second. So Hirschfeld, um, so he was always with Hirschfeld. He also even served, Marcus even served as, as a character witness in different trials when gay men were put on trial. And Hirschfeld asked him to be a character witness for, for different men who were persecuted. So Marcus also helped pen the petitions that were given to the justice minister to repeal the infamous um, paragraph 175, which basically um, linked gay men to men who committed uh, bestiality in, in, in the language of the law. It saw them as the same and criminalized them. So, so gay men were persecuted in this era. So Marcus was a very important supporting figure in petitioning the justice ministry to repeal these laws. So, so he always played a behind-the-scenes role. And, and, and Marcus was, was, was known. He was known as a gay rights um, um, supporter and, and fighter. And he was known from the time he joined the Scientific Humanitarian Committee before 1900, around 1900. Uh, he was well known in the gay rights struggle when he was a student at the University of Berlin. And, and he, throughout his life, until the end of his life in 1966, as uh, just a couple of years before he, he passed away, he even was able to publish, um, continue to publish um, f gay fiction in the leading gay magazine of the day, which was Der Kreis, published in 
Zurich. And going back to what you said about his um, misogynistic utopias, would you tell us about, about those as well? Yes. So his in his in his mind, the perfect world would be something he borrowed from well, both Plato and Nietzsche really brought the, brought them both together. Would be this revolutionary elite, an intellectual, aristocratic, gay elite, a group of men who had the vision to rescue Germany from the abyss in which it had fallen following the First World War. So for Marcus, who was a pacifist like Hirschfeld, the First World War proved that Christian culture, German culture needed to be redeemed. Christianity perhaps was according to Marcus, was beyond the pale of redemption. It, it wasn't possible for Germans to be Christian and to recover from the the physical losses, the cultural losses, the moral dead end that German society had, had, had entered as proven in the First World War. Marcus saw the liberation of German society by returning to Goethe's vision of Islam and German culture. So in a way, to look forward, they had to return to Goethe's concepts. So, but this is the other interesting aspect of Marcus's life. He also thought, he also believed that Goethe was gay. Now, this word gay is, is problematic because Marcus was a man who loved men, but he, and wrote about it in, in his published and unpublished work, he wrote erotic uh, fiction about his imam uh, in the Berlin Mosque, for example, that he didn't publish. So Marcus was a man. He had a he had for decades. He had a, a a boyfriend, a friend who was a younger man, actually a Catholic Polish man. But so Marcus loved men, but he never called himself gay. So Hirschfeld also was a man who loved men and fought for their freedom in society, but also never called himself gay. So, but of course, here we are in, in, in 2022, this is a word we used. Different words were used at the time. But, but the point is, is that he, Marcus believed reading Goethe's letters, reading Goethe's poetry, reading Go, Goethe's prose, he believed that Goethe was like him, that Goethe also believed that the best friendship, the, the only true friendship is that between men? That women women are are distractions. They get in the way. Um, men only have relations, sexual relations, with women to procreate. But actually, the the perfect, the ideal human body is a male body. And Marcus, when you read Goethe's fiction, when you read his novels, you see some of the most beautiful descriptions of young nude males and some of the most erotic passages I, I quote them in the book come from Goethe's fiction so Marcus in his own fiction used Goethe's inspiration and also wrote about the relations between older men and younger younger men young men so so mature men and young men but also some also wrote about as Goethe did also wrote about uh, young men who loved each other so so he saw Goethe as both Muslim 
and gay, the word we would use today. And so this was a model for his utopia that he wanted this elite of Muslim gay men, this aristocracy, this intellectual elite that would rescue Germany after the First World War. And I mean, with the the Muslim organization he was a part of, we also see at the time when when uh, Nazis came to power, they also turn, uh, they also support the uh, new government. And how does it play out in his life? Well, Marcus faced a number of um, problems when the Nazis came to power. Now, Marcus was born in 1880. So he, so when the Nazis come to power, he is he's a, a middle-aged man. Marcus is always always portrays himself as a German patriot. I don't the nationalist is the wrong word, but he's he's definitely a German patriot. He loves Germany. And he was when he was young, he was a member of the Vandervogel movement and but this movement as we know became anti-Jewish at a certain point and would expel Jewish members and would promote racist views. And Marcus was conflicted about this as well. And in one of his, in, in one of the things he writes, he writes about how he was on this hiking expedition in the Hartz Mountains, and just just astonished by the beauty of his homeland. But then he he writes that, but I was Jewish, and could Jews love the homeland as other Germans? And and you know so so he so he has this he's in a way he's absorbed some of this anti-Semitic uh, views of who belongs to Germany, and so this is something that he you know you can see his in his in his in his subconscious that he was struggling with the fact that he was Jewish, the fact that he was a German patriot, he seems to have solved it in a way by becoming Muslim, but at the same time he never. As long as he was able, he never left the Jewish Gemeinde. He never left the Jewish community until the Nazis put pressure on the mosque, 1935, because he was still, even after the Nazis had come to power, he was still supported by his, his brethren in the mosque. He was still the leader of the German Muslim society in the mosque. He was still delivering lectures in the mosque. He was still socializing with other Germans in the mosque. But then when the Nuremberg Laws were passed, 1935, when so-called Germans were no longer allowed to socialize, mix in any way with people defined as Jewish, then this became a problem for the mosque community. And so in his autobiographical writing, unpublished, after the war, he writes that you know, he never wanted to leave Judaism. He never wanted to stop being legally, officially Jewish. And he always kept very close relations with his Jewish family and Jewish friends and colleagues, not just Hirschfeld, but the other person whose name we were looking for earlier was, of course, Hiller, the famous Kurt Hiller, who was younger than Marcus and who actually called himself gay. And he was socialist. And he was beaten nearly to death in a concentration camp and then fled to England. So Marcus was not a communist, not a socialist, 
Hirschfeld was more a social democrat. Marxist was not a leftist at all. He was a German patriot. He was a centrist. He had relate. He had contacts with members of the different centrist German political parties, including the Catholic one. So he was a fairly right-wing conservative person anyway. So when the Nazis come to power, he is similar to other German men of his generation in that they're patriots, they love Germany, and they're not Nazis. So he he is with that group of men. But younger men in the mosque, younger German converts to Islam are becoming Nazis. And, and the danger is from those men, because those younger German Muslims are talking to the Gestapo. And you read the Gestapo reports, which of course are not true, they're propaganda, but they, the Gestapo reports from around that time, the early 1930s, 1935, claim that the mosque is a hotbed of, of Judaism. And it's a place where it's, a, it's, and they use all kinds of derogatory terms saying that it's filled with Jews. This isn't true. I mean, Marcus, yes, but it's, but that's, you know, that's, that's about it. So Marcus then, 1935, 1936, decides to disappear. So even though members of the mosque community, especially these the Indian Muslims who had established, the British Indian Muslims who had established the mosque, vote for him and want him to be um, the leader of the German Muslim community and also want him to continue to give lectures in the mosque, he, he, was, he, he disappears. He goes, he, he stops attending the mosque. He resigns his position in the Jewish community. In Germany, of course, you, you know, you, you, Become a member of a religious, an accepted religious community by paying, you, you know, you're, you 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 declare it with the government. So he declares to the government that he's resigning, he's quitting membership in the Jewish community. It's clearly under duress. So then he is still there in Berlin. Perhaps he's even spending time at the house that's connected to the mosque where the imam lives. But officially, he's living with his mother. One of his brothers has committed suicide. Another of his brothers will be arrested and sent to a concentration camp where he will die. Marcus is still living with his mother. He's living with his mother. Now it's as late as 1938, right? So he's a middle-aged man. He's a German patriot. No matter how bad things are, you know, the Nazis even take away his typewriter. Um, no matter how bad things are, he still he remains in Germany. He cannot believe. I mean, I this is this is my interpretation. He cannot believe how could what is happening. He believes that his his you know his 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 Muslim friends in the mosque will you know will he cannot he cannot believe what is happening. And then he's and then um, the night of broken glass happens, November 9th, November tenth, nineteen thirty eight. And Marcus is arrested, along with thousands of other Berlin Jews. He's arrested as a Jew, not as a gay man, which is lucky, because the gay men that were incarcerated in Sachsenhausen, Marcus is in, incarcerated in Sachsenhausen after the night of broken glass. The gay, man, gay men who were imprisoned there suffered an almost 100% death rate. 
So the, the gay men who were arrested were almost to a man worked to death and abused and murdered. So Marcus, but Marcus is not arrested as a gay man. He's certainly not arrested as a Muslim. The Nazis are not arresting Muslims. They are not persecuting Muslims as Muslims. He's arrested as a Jew and he's, he's, he's abused and he's mistreated in the camp, but they let him go. And according to the, the, rec the Soviet records, uh, the Soviets liberated the camp and then they, the records, uh, you find the records there. According to the records, he was in the camp about 10 days. Now, you know, 10 days is horrible. He didn't know whether he was going to live or be killed. Nevertheless, after about 10 days, they, they, they released him telling him to leave all of his wealth and property behind and quit the country as soon as he could. Or the next time they put him in the camp, he will never leave. So they, they threaten him. They say they're going to kill him unless he leaves the country. So what does Marcus do? He goes back home to Wilmersdorf or to, to where or Charlottenburg and where he where he was, and he and he and he remains. He doesn't leave the country. He lives with his elderly mother and he works on the Quran translation. <laughs> so and you know, and so you you know, someone who's you know, you're reading this and you're thinking, I mean, you know, look look at what's happening around you. Now it wasn't easy, of course. It was extremely difficult, of course, for a middle-aged German Jew to leave the country in 1938, 1939. No, who's going to take who's going to take them in? It was extremely difficult. His he and his mother surrendered all of their wealth and property. Then they are moved. It's hard to follow the 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 the, the pattern. It's hard to, to follow, but it looks like the two of them were then moved to a what was called a Jewish house, um, apartment buildings that were taken over and where Nazis um, um, basically concentrated Jews prior to their being deported uh, to the camps after that. So he and his mother were there and he's working away on the, the Quran translation into German, into German. But it's at this point that he uses his international network of gay, Jewish, and Muslim people to escape the country. So the imam of the mosque manages to secure for him a, a pass that states that he's not a threat to, to the, the, the Nazi Reich. And that's because his imam serves as character witness. So with that, with that permission, he is able to leave the country because then the uh, the the Muslim community, the Ahmadi, his mosque, his mosque community in British India, provide him a passport. They provide him a passport to British India. So with the paper that says he's not a threat to the regime, and with his British visa, he he actually leaves the country. He actually he takes. I'm guessing. I don't know how he did it. But he manages most likely to take a train to Switzerland. Now, why does he go to Switzerland? Why doesn't he go to Hamburg and take a steamer to, to India? Well, this was dangerous, though. This was very dangerous because there are other German Jews we know who boarded ships in Hamburg, but then who, whose ships were returned to Hamburg and they were deported to Auschwitz and murdered. So, so that was a dangerous route to go because 
this is we're speaking in the autumn. This is in the in in the, the late summer of 1939, just about ten days before the Second World War breaks out. Marcus shows up in Switzerland. So had he waited another 10 days, or had he not been able to get out another 10 days, he would have been stuck in Germany, and he would have been murdered along with his mother. But what happens instead is that he makes it to Switzerland, and he has this British passport. But 10 days later, the war breaks out, and the passport's canceled. <laughs> so, so, so now so he escapes to Switzerland. Now, we know during the war that Switzerland it's according to what we what we understand switzerland allowed about 20,000 people like marcus german jews into the country and saved their lives but it it turned back at its borders about 20,000 german jews who were murdered so the swiss record is mixed but marcus makes it into switzerland and he he goes to basel he goes to actually Basel Land, so the, the canton outside the city of Basel. And there he, we're not sure why, but he's, he's allowed to, to, to remain. In fact, he remains in Basel the rest of his life to 1966. So from 1939 to 1966, he remains in, in Basel or, or, or Basel Land, so the canton of, of Basel outside the city itself. So he used his gay network to Per, to secure his his stay there, a, a gay friend would send him money. A the Jewish community, his he has family. He had family in Zurich. They would support him financially, and also the Ahmadi, this British Indian Muslim community that established the mosque in Berlin, to which he he was a member, they also would support him until the 1950s. So again, it's the, the gay, the Jewish, and the Muslim networks which allow him to live really a very long and prosperous life despite all the difficulties. And somehow, we don't know how, he managed to bring his mother to Switzerland as well. At the end of 1939, after the war broke out, an elderly, un, not very healthy Jewish woman. He brings, I don't know how, I haven't been able to find out how, but he managed, probably using these same networks, he brings her to, to Switzerland and she's able to live out just a few years, but the rest of her life in dignity, in peace, and she passes away in Zurich. And I mean, uh, we're coming to a close slowly. Um, and I want to ask you, I mean, um, when I was reading the book, I already thought that you were such a capturing author i couldn't stop reading and also listening to you're also very, a very capturing storyteller and uh, yeah as well how do you do that well it's it's the the story that 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 moves the writer so it's it's not me it's a story of his life has so many contradictions you know german muslim jewish gay and his bringing all these different elements together in his his fiction and as well as in his real life it's it's his his life story pushes it but but to be honest it did take me i started working on this book around 2009 when i was in berlin and the book was published in 2020 so that gives you an idea of uh, how much effort it took me um to read through the material was difficult not because it's in german Although some of the philosophical material in German, even though it's published, um, is head spinning because he 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 you know, Marcus doesn't think like other people think about people such as Nietzsche or Goethe. So so you read it 
and you say, well, what is he saying here? So, so working with this philosophical material was difficult. But the other problem was his handwriting. So his handwriting deteriorated over the years. And then, like I mentioned, it's, I'm, I, I, it's no joke. The Nazis took away his typewriter. So then he, he could only write by hand. And his writing was pretty undecipherable. I mean, he, he was born in 1880. So already he wrote in almost a different script to what you learn in Germany today anyway, right? Um, so there, I, had to, I couldn't, I couldn't um, decipher for example, the letters that he exchanged with his mother at the end of her life, um, which would be very revealing, but they're literally undecipherable. I don't know if she could read what he wrote either. So we, we do have those. Uh, I was lucky that after he passed away, his nachlas was, was turned over to the, to the central library in Zurich. So any researcher can go and can read his private papers in, in, in comfort there in the, in the very fine facility of the, the Central Library of Zurich. And they also have collected his published work as well as all of his unpublished papers are there. So, so the material has been there since, for, for a long time, but it took someone such as myself, it took someone with, with the curiosity um, to to read through it and to to tell the story that I do. Well, thank you very much for this great conversation, Mark David Baer. You talked about German Jew, Muslim, gay, the life and times of Hugo Marcus, and this is New Books Network. My name is Armand Childers. Until next time. <laughs>